before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The All-Star has passed. It is officially basketball season, and we are headed to the home stretch of both the college and pro hoops regular seasons. BetOnline is the number one place to stop for all the odds, totals, and player performance props. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up and get a 50% welcome bonus when you use the promo code BLEAV. B-L-E-A-V. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take It. Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. Thank you for stopping in here. This time, actually, the podcast may possibly be live because this is also simulcasted over on YouTube. So, for one of the first few times, I guess we've done it like five or six times. This podcast may possibly be live for many of you who are stopping in to the smaller clips available on our Comical Sports YouTube channel. Check us out there for more content and some content that you can also catch here. Um, I didn't really have a whole lot to talk about today, so to lead us into the weekend, I wanted to play some of our YouTube videos from the past couple of days. I want to talk about something that happened with Matthew Stafford that I find incredibly interesting and a story of Trent Williams, the Washington football team, the San Francisco 49ers. I found both of those things fascinating. So we will get to that as a unofficial B and C block type of show today, different format from the show. This is one of the formats we used to do back in the uh, early days of the podcast, which is more of a John Olivery type pot show where we have some different segments in which we tackle larger scale stories. Comes out to about 40, 50 minutes for this weekend's pod. Also check out the show we did yesterday on the Deshaun Watson lawsuit and the show we did with Walter Mitchell and Joe Camo, Morgan from Australia, all of our friends came on board this week for some wonderful, wonderful podcasts that you can check out here. Uh, Before we get into those topics, I want to talk a little bit about Ukraine and Russia, but I want to talk about Ukraine and Russia to just say that I don't really have anything new I can bring to the table on this topic. And one of the things that I say pretty consistently is I really try to not say the obvious thing. I really don't want this podcast to be re-articulating the obvious thing because I really don't like when other people do it. Because the obvious thing is easy, straightforward to understand, often involves propaganda and people with agendas on different sides, but ultimately the easiest thing, which in this case is it's wrong to bomb 
people in a country that does not have the ability to defend itself, that is the easy stance to take on that one. And the I don't. This is a classic situation of the allies on one side are not necessarily the allies you'd like to have. But when you're going up against an authoritarian, an authoritarian ruler who is deciding to impose his will by invading the Ukraine, by using his military power to invade Ukraine, a country that should be holding democratic elections because in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union, they established sovereignty in the 90s. That country, it's easy to back the side of the United States and the global market when at the same time capitalism dictates that these people have agendas that will work in their favor by cutting off gas pipelines to Russia, which will ultimately benefit the U.S. economy, and it will lead to Europe having increased gas prices, which is ultimately kind of where my mind went with this originally when there were talks about whether Ukraine would be invaded or not getting invaded was would people in Europe be willing to accept slightly higher prices of gas, and would the United States benefit from an invasion of Russia because they could impose sanctions that ultimately lead to higher dependence on U.S. oil or dirty Saudi Arabian-backed oil, which is also being purchased by the United States. But we don't say that part out loud, that we sell guns to a hostile foreign government in exchange for accepting oil from them. All of this is very complex and difficult. And saying the obvious thing on this one feels like something I want to sit out there. And it reminds me a lot of what happened after the Capitol riot on January 6th last year, where I came on and essentially said, ultimately, the boiling point will be a tipping point of not necessarily a civil war, but a conflict of which the divisiveness in America will come to a head and lead to some sort of reimagining or change of the government system. Or you just keep pretending like everything is fine and just keeping the system in place, which not necessarily sure if the Republican Party is interested in that as they continue to clamor for power and short-sighted moves. This is a really difficult conversation that people on all sides, I mean, all facets of the country, because it's dominating the news news headlines today and for the rest of this week, it's a really difficult topic to try and tackle and requires a whole lot of perspective on this. And there are no good answers in this case. There may be better answers than others, but if this were an easy problem to fix, it would be fixed at this point. And again, I don't want to say the easy thing, but this is something that happened in the aftermath of the Capitol riot where I came here and I said, essentially this boils down to a conflict that will ultimately come to a head years and years from now. And as crazy as this may seem, this is one step and not necessarily an ultimatum. Now, ultimately, Trump left office after the fact, and it seems like there was at least a bare minimum level of accountability of Trump kind of backtracked after that, and now he's backtracked from some of the most egregious stances that he had in the past. He himself has articulated the power of being pro-vaccine. He's afraid of lawsuits for recklessness and things of these sorts, people going to jail on his behalf, lying under oath on his behalf, and All of this stuff looked like there was some measure of accountability that kind of pulled everyone off the ledge a little bit, which is what I told Walter a couple weeks ago with the the Kylo Murray thing, just everyone taking a deep breath on this situation. Because as crazy as the first insurrection of the last 200 years was, this is a first insurrection in 200 years in American history. If we just take an exhale 
and take a step back and just pause on this situation, we'll realize that as unprecedented as this may seem, history has a level of precedent for this. And by the way, there are tons of precedents in American history for, for, for war being declared against governments, not just in the United States, but without United States congressional approval. We can go back to propaganda campaigns around the Iraq war in 2003 that convinced America, I believe about 60% in, at one point in 2003 were in favor of the Iraq war. And when Steve Nash came out against it, it was very much a bold proclamation for a Canadian basketball star to be against the Iraq war. And he took a lot of flack for that because it was extremely unpopular to be against the Iraq war once upon a time. In Vietnam, there was a massive campaign of false information that enabled the United States to invade Vietnam. And for wishy-washy reasons, people ended up supporting the war as a propaganda campaign. And as a propaganda campaign, it led to tens of thousands of deaths at of United States and Viet Cong soldiers in a war that ultimately the United States loses and didn't gain anything from. And Vietnam now is a one-party government, but at the time it was a very much in limbo because of the U.S.-backed government. And you can go to Russia invading Afghanistan in the 1980s, and that ultimately leading to the downfall of the USSR because it bled their resources and similar type of situation for the United States now as they become less of a global superpower than they have been in 80 to 90 years. And by the way, Russia, not a global superpower anymore. Russia is the equivalent economy of Italy, and a massive portion of their economy comes from oil and gas, which is now being sanctioned off by the United States. But all of this was what Vladimir Putin was willing to accept in the first place. The point to all of this is there is a precedent for a lot of this stuff. And as someone who's a history nerd, not just in sports, but in society at large in history, because, again, sports are a reflection of society, and this weird world that we live in should help us learn more about the world around us, there isn't really a whole lot I can add that isn't the obvious point or hasn't been stated before, because history reflects that this will ultimately look poorly upon all parties involved here. Vladimir Putin, for the invasion of Ukraine— as a, a falsified attack against the Nazification of Ukraine, as he likes to call it, which in fairness, in 2014, the United States backed a far-right government that they imposed and then ultimately had the government, uh, the leader of the government get moved out within two years over corruption. It's been a long battle in Ukraine to figure out who is the rightful owner of power and what type of regime is there. And now Russia has decided that absorbing the country for their own economic, political, and social gain, which is essentially what Vladimir Putin is pointing to when he decides to invade Russia, even if he doesn't admit it or lies in press conferences about denazifying Ukraine. All of this will reflect poorly that way, but the gains that he has decided here are worth the possible sanctions ultimately benefit the United States and it benefits the United States to drag this war out, which is why when Joe Biden institutes a military presence outside of Ukraine for the United States without congressional approval, 
it is the right thing to say the people bombing the pe- the 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 Russians who are bombing the people of Ukraine are bad guys. The United States also not clean, but they're the allies who will probably be more right in the grand scheme of history than Russia, which proposes a whole question about how history gets written by the winners. It is all extremely complex and difficult to figure out. And like I said off the top, similarly to the January 6th insurrection, there's a lot of precedent in history for this situation, even in what seems like unprecedented times. History can help guide decision-making forward. It is, again, I think 41 Congress people sent a letter basically telling Joe Biden, hey, do not invade without congressional approval because the United States has a pretty damn long history of invasions and involvement in other countries without congressional approval from Ronald Reagan in Nicaragua, is it Nicaragua, I believe it was? Ronald Reagan basically funded a secret rebel campaign in in Central America, which then led to him selling guns to other countries and had one of the great scandals of American history to Richard Nixon uh, in the Vietnam War, to Eisenhower in the Korean War. You can go to Bush in the Gulf War, the Sun Bush in the Iraq War. Like, there's a long precedent for this. You could even go to Afghanistan and Obama, who wasn't directly responsible for the beginning of Afghanistan, but also didn't have the gall to end up removing the removing the conflict in Afghanistan and instead continuing along the status quo. This is, again, a history of America that we then add a new element to in Ukraine, which is not that new because, again, the U.S. invaded or not, the U.S. backed a far-right government regime in 2014 during the whole Crimea thing. I, I was in, like, seventh grade when it happened and i'd low-key forgotten about it but go i mean like as part of this story read up on the history of crimea as well because i don't have time to talk about all of that but basically russia tries to annex the crimean peninsula the u.s ends up backing a far-right government in ukraine to protect them they end up set, uh, coming to terms at the end of it all and russia ends up leaving in air quotes, because the conflict still kept going on, America institutes a new government and the government ends up leaving over corruption. It's very complex again. And similarly to that case, there is a precedent for this. And this one event is kind of something that is going to capture the national news attention now. And similarly to the Vietnam War and the Iraq War, it'll capture attention now. And as it goes along, similarly to every U.S. involvement over the last 50 to 60 years in foreign elections and in unpopular wars, the United States is better off taking a hands-off approach in this situation because when they take a hands-on approach, it ultimately delays the inevitable, but in this case leads to short-term economic gain for the United States as there's pressure from other European countries who are also pretty much against a far-right authoritarian regime invading another country, you're going to see a hands-off approach there. You can point to World War II, you can point to Vietnam War, you can point to Korea War, you can point to Russia's in, or the USSR's invasion of Afghanistan, or you can point to Iraq for the United States, or you can go to the Gulf War as well. All of this is there is a precedent set for most of this stuff and many of the same patterns frustratingly for many people are falling into the same camp and again there are people who will all ultimately look poorly upon in the future there are this is a really complex issue to figure out 
And while we've kind of talked this out a little bit for 15 minutes, there is no definitive point I can go to and say, this is who is right, this is who is wrong, and this is my thoughts on this. Because it's really complex. And even I don't understand all of this stuff because it is incredibly difficult to figure out. And by the way, when it's one of these issues that has now captured national attention, there is a whole lot of people with different agendas putting different bits of information out there. And it's really complex to sort through the information. It's why we have a real issue in America and the world at large with trying to find credible sourcing of information and fact-based knowledge because facts have been under siege for quite some time and powerful people have a massive agenda in this Russia-Ukraine stake and it's going to lead to power trying to accumulate more power and ultimately that will come from propaganda campaigns where if you are not educated on the issue you are more likely to fall victim to propaganda campaigns which is one of the truest lessons across all of history so again i'm bouncing across a lot of different things here but similarly to the january 6th election or sorry january 6th insurrection as unprecedented as it may seem in the short term There is a historical precedent. There's even a recent historical precedent. And this is a story that, similarly to what we talked about with the Henry Ruggs situation and the Antonio Brown situation, and a lot of these uh, massive news stories about specific issues, we ultimately only care so much about these issues because the news cycle won't keep up long enough to institute real change unless people are willing to put pressure on it to create real change. I think back to the um, protests during the summer of George Floyd when George Floyd was killed and Ahmaud Arbery's trial was, uh, or Ahmaud Arbery's killers had been charged and Breonna Taylor's killers had been charged and ultimately the charges were dismissed. And then we had the Jacob Blake shooting and then we had the Dante Wright shooting. And then you can go down the line to Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta during the same summer and burning down a Wendy's. This was all within about a four-month period with a break and then the Jacob Blake shooting in August. And even that didn't have the power to institute real legitimate change because real legitimate change involves putting pressures on, in this case, white power structures to force change over the long run. In this case, I don't think there's going to be enough power pushing back against the United States, whether it be public opinion or whether it be the Russian people pushing back against Vladimir Putin, I don't think there's going to be enough pressure on either side to prevent this conflict of power from waging itself because powerful people ultimately don't have a measure of accountability in place, whether it be shame or public pressure or whatever it may be other than the fact of future elections to prevent something incredibly unpopular on all sides from happening. The people who have the power in this situation are essentially the closest thing to it are Vladimir Putin's closest allies within Russia who could pressure him to say, hey, this is economically damaging for us. Please stop invading Ukraine. And in the United States side, it is public pressure on Joe Biden to not stay in the middle or go to the playbook of predecessors like George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, 
even Barack Obama to a certain extent, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, not falling into the same traps of previous administrations and following the same playbook for how America responded in the past to global crises it, while having the cake, having your cake and eating it, being advocates for pro-democracy and trying to make short-term economic gains while ignoring the part where you tried to back a far-right government in Ukraine to push back against the Russians, but we can ignore that part and all conv- uh, all coming together at the end of the day to create one messy loop that doesn't really have an accountability structure for power. And as news media stops covering this event because life will move on and new stories will pop up, and similarly to how we talked about uh, Israel and Palestine back a few months ago, these and uh, SOS Cuba and other human rights violations in smaller countries that have that are uh, you know chess pieces waged in a global war for power, all of this will only remain so much in the news stream for so long. And with a lot of people having a lot of different agendas, a lot of people's opinions are going to be formed on this issue based on power structures that are out of their control. And so similarly to how we talked about other uh, other sociological issues and social science issues like how much we value drunk driving in America um, and whether or not we want to invest time, resources, and will to changing this in the short term, we want to create change in Ukraine, but this is going to be a long grinding process similarly to the war in Afghanistan that might have no resolution other than the people with more power and the agenda to do so, i.e. Russia will ultimately impose their will upon the Ukrainian people and, by the way, might be the worst or the best of a bunch of bad options at this point because its previous decisions in the past whether it be the U.S. trying to back a far-right government in Ukraine or economic sanctions from Europe that will ultimately improve United States positioning and stronghold on the global economy, to Vladimir Putin just having total authoritarian power in a country that does not have free democratic elections and has the military might to be able to invade a foreign country without really any recourse other than other countries getting involved in waging a full-scale war, which, by the way, not really a great idea based on dozens and dozens of years of history, not a great idea to wage a full-scale war in such a way. And so this is where you kind of remain in limbo when it comes to this issue, which is how much do we really value the lives of Ukrainian people as a whole, not on an individual level, as a whole, how how willing are we going to be to continue putting pressure on the government in this way? Because at a certain point, people just became resigned and defeated to the Afghanistan war. And it went on for 20 years because people were resigned to the fact that they could not influence the power structures in America, not by voting people out or voting people in to positions of power. It was too much of a power system around those politicians in such a way that big money was going to continue to precede that war. And ultimately, as long as U.S. economic interests are in such a way that imposing sanctions on Russia benefit the country, 
you're going to see something similar happen again where this gets dragged out and public uh, public discourse starts to slow down around this issue. We've seen it before. The playbook is being followed. It's putting continuous pressure on those power systems in order to prevent that from happening. And ultimately, we will find out how much people value the lives of the Ukrainian people and the the willingness to sacrifice in order to do the quote-unquote right thing in trying to push back against Russia when ultimately this is a problem where, I mean, again, in a, to make a sports analogy, we talked about this with the Seahawks where all of a sudden the bills are coming due. When you make short-sighted decision, short-sighted decision, short-sighted decision, eventually the bills come due. And for the United States and for Europe, this is where the bills come due. They tried to delay a conflict in Russia or in Ukraine that benefits Russia according to Vladimir Putin's calculation. He delayed it as long as he could, and ultimately the result is going to be an invasion of Russia that drags out across many months and many years, and will likely ultimately end up with either Russia coming to a compromise with Ukraine or the Ukrainian people having a vict- an unexpected victory because you are fighting for your lives in some way, shape, or form, and push the Russian government out, similarly to how Vietnam pushed the United States out. But more likely than not, this is a conflict that will not lead... I mean, if it leads to military involvement and a full-scale war for the United States and Europe, will be hugely, hugely unpopular. And uh, similarly to how Syria was hugely unpopular and Afghanistan was hugely unpopular, you're going to start to see... Of either those same patterns replicate themselves and more people becoming resigned to global geopolitics that is difficult to understand and ultimately a huge propaganda campaign by the American government will ultimately keep the power in check or I'm sorry keep the an old, a massive campaign by the US government will ultimately keep the pressure systems on powerful people at bay and Ultimately, the shame that will be put, brought upon people the other way are going to be something that kind of pushes back against this. So again, this was kind of just trying to tackle some of this stuff. I don't necessarily have any definitive point for you other than this is the bills coming due. And we will find out, similarly to how we did with the, with the insurrection, we will find out how much we actually care about democracy. We will find out how much we care about the lives of the Ukrainian people, and we will ultimately find out how much we care about human rights in a place that we don't know more than a couple of extra dollars on the gas bills of European countries, and for the United States, how much money and lives are willing to be spent in order to protect a country who and might benefit from a ceasefire and a compromise, because ultimately this is the will of Vladimir Putin determining the fate of the Ukrainian people because he has a gigantic military. So, uh, awkward transition here. Don't have a great conclusion to end it. Again, I don't really have a definitive point that we can articulate here, but uh, let's talk about uh, a couple of YouTube videos here that we did. One on Trent Williams, shout out to Trent Williams here, and one on the Detroit Lions. And you can find both of these videos available now on our Comical Sports YouTube channel, which is available in the link to this episode. It's in the description here. Somewhere in the description, you can find this link and this video. 
new sponsor alert, people. It's the good people over at Athletic Greens supporting this podcast. You can get 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens with one scoop a day of Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens has a special blend of ingredients that support your gut health, nervous system, immune system, boost your energy, as well as improving recovery times. You can reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. One scoop in a cup of water, and that's it. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D using the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, at athleticgreens.com slash BLEAV. By the way, the link to that is in the description to this episode. Go to athleticgreens.com slash BLEAV and use our promo code at checkout. Athletic Greens, take ownership of your health. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So for the past couple weeks, I've been trying to find a place to work in this story about Matthew Stafford and uh, the saga that was Matthew Stafford's trade last offseason. It was actually the week of the Pro Bowl last year that didn't exist because, you know, the Pro Bowl got canceled and nobody missed it. It's the reason why we don't need the Pro Bowl anymore. But anyways, when this was all going on, I thought back to last year around this time where Matthew Stafford was on the market for the Detroit Lions. And it was weird because quarterbacks never really become available We can talk about 2012 where Peyton Manning has neck surgery and helicopters are chasing him around Arizona because he has a meeting with Steve Keim and the Cardinals and all of this stuff that ultimately leads to a four-year hiatus of the Broncos being a shitty franchise. Rarely does a quarterback ever become available of Matthew Stafford's caliber, not even to say Matthew Stafford's like an elite quarterback by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a top 10 quarterback rarely ever comes available. And so when Stafford came available, there were so many different connecting points, whether it be the Colts or whether it be Carolina or Washington or uh, I think Denver was one everyone connected to because John Elway is the guy who always trades for the Matthew Stafford type quarterback, despite the fact that the team doesn't really have a whole lot of competence in management, but then the Broncos change their front office and all that stuff. But one of the things that I found interesting that I forgot about actually a year later as Stafford ends up winning the championship, not necessarily because of him specifically, but just because he was better than Jared Goff and a perfect confluence of events for a really talented Rams team and the Packers playing in the snow, all that stuff. I'm not saying like that trade was a changing of the landscape in the NFL. It was just a really, really unique situation where I forgot that the Rams actually offered less than what other teams had on the table, but because the Lions wanted to do right by Matthew Stafford, they took the lesser offer and absorb Jared Goff's contract in order to send him to the Rams instead of taking the better offers. So I revisited what those better offers for Matthew Stafford were. And oh my gosh, now that we have a year later, the confluence of events that followed afterwards, you know, the, uh, what's the, what's the phrase for it? Damn it. What is the phrase? Uh, Butterfly effect. Now that we have the butterfly effect in place of all these different moves, Holy shit, the Lions totally screwed themselves 
out of potentially having a rebuild that was hugely successful by taking the lesser offer. And not just because the Detroit Lions lost the gamble of the draft pick for the Rams. They knew the Rams were going to make the playoffs in the next two seasons. They just delayed their draft picks down the road so they could be in rebuilding mode for a lot of years. And ultimately, I talked about this with the Jaguars trading Jalen Ramsey and the Jets trading Jamal Adams. The prize at the end was not what they got for Jalen Ramsey, which now is the equivalent of Clavon Chason and Travis Etienne for Jalen Ramsey, which is a shit trade by the Jacksonville Jaguars, or the Jets, who essentially are going to get trading up to get, or I'm sorry, trading down to get Elijah Vera Tucker and or no, trading up to get Elijah Vera Tucker and whoever they get with the 10 pick in this year's draft, which isn't really equal to the compensation of Jamal Adams. What they get as a victory was Trevor Lawrence being bad enough to get Trevor Lawrence at the top of the draft was part of trading Jalen Ramsey and being bad enough immediately after trading Jamal Adams to get Zach Wilson was the trade-off there. So the Lions were banking on by trading Stafford for nothing in the short term except Jared Goff, who's clearly worse than Matthew Stafford, by trading nothing in the short term that helps the team now, our prize is we have the number two pick in the NFL draft, an NFL draft that doesn't have a generational talent. Yes, that's what it kind of looks like, but we have the number two pick in the NFL draft, two first-round picks coming down the road, and we'll clear the books later on and figure out the quarterback position as we go, as they're probably going to keep Jared Goff for a second season. So I went back into the archives and looked at what the Lions passed up on, and this is according to a tweet from Adam Schefter, February 7th, 2021. During trade talks to try and acquire Matthew Stafford, the Carolina Panthers made a serious offer to the Lions of the eighth overall pick, a fifth round pick, and quarterback Teddy Bridgewater. Detroit opted to take the Rams offer, Carolina still looking. Also, Dan Patrick reported that the Denver Broncos put Drew Locke and the number nine pick in the 2021 NFL draft up for the Detroit Lions to take. So the Lions had multiple offers of top 10 picks in last year's NFL draft, and they ultimately opted for two lesser first-round picks and a third-round pick, but also two lesser first-round picks, and they had to absorb Jared Goff's contract. Because with all three of these offers, no matter what, the Lions would have had no quarterback. Jared Goff, not a franchise quarterback. Teddy Bridgewater, barely a starter in the NFL. Drew Locke, ass. Like, backup quarterback, ass in the NFL. And Drew Locke was a backup for Teddy Bridgewater this year, and he's going to go be a backup somewhere else next year. So all of these cases, they would have not had a quarterback. That's an equalizer there. Bridgewater, his contract would have expired after this year. So the Lions would have had clear books on the contract. Jared Goff is still going to be under contract this next year. And then they have an out after next year. If they want to move off Goff for relatively little dead cap, they can get rid of Jared Goff after two seasons. Drew Locke would have just been a bridge guy. Maybe he gets benched for, I don't know, whoever their backup was. Is it still David Blau? Is David Blau still the backup for the Detroit Lions? He is still the backup. David Blau is still the backup for the Detroit Lions at this point. Okay, so anyways, the Detroit Lions would have not had a quarterback. 
So now let's evaluate it from the draft pick standpoint. The Lions would have had either the eight pick in last year's draft, which the Panthers had, or they would have had the nine pick from the Denver Broncos. Instead, they took the number 32 pick this year and whatever pick the Detroit or the Los Angeles Rams will have next year. And they had a third round compensatory pick in last year's draft. I believe that pick became Amon Ross St. Brown. So nice little victory there. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I believe that compensatory pick ended up becoming Amon Ross St. Brown. So nice little pick up there by the Detroit Lions. One of the things that's interesting about this, though, is the fifth round pick for the Panthers could have turned into something, but for the time being, we're just going to not really pay that much attention to it. Actually, correction, it was Afiatu Melifonwu was the cornerback from Syracuse that was picked with the compensatory pick. Uh, He had a minimal performance this year because he went on injured reserve in week two. So they basically got nothing for the third round pick at this point. Maybe Melifonwu turns into something, but... He played two games and got hurt last year. He's a third round pick. Those guys get cut all the time. Average NFL careers like a year and a half. So they didn't really get anything for that third round pick. So let's focus on first rounder for the Lions. And had they taken a different offer? Because no matter what, they wouldn't have had a quarterback. And the third round versus fifth rounder didn't really work out. So they have pick number 32 this year and the Rams first rounder next year. We don't know what that's going to end up being. Let's say they took the Panthers offer last year, which is technically the best offer. The eight pick is slightly better than the nine pick, but they're ultimately about the same. If they had done wrong by Matthew Stafford and had they traded Matthew Stafford to the uh, Carolina Panthers and they would have gone six and 11 instead of five and 12 with their rotating cast of terrible quarterbacks, if they had traded Matthew Stafford, the Lions would have then had the seven and eight picks back to back in the draft. So let's go back to the 2022 or 2021 NFL draft. First pick, Trevor Lawrence. Second pick, Zach Wilson. Third pick, Trey Lance. Fourth pick would have still been Kyle Pitts. Fifth pick, Jamar Chase. Sixth pick, uh, Jalen Waddell by the Miami Dolphins. Then back to back, seven, eight for the Detroit Lions. Now, the Lions definitely still take Panay Sewell at pick seven. I think they would have taken Panay Sewell had he been there at pick five. So he goes there. Maybe if we want to play the game of just situations don't matter here, they take J.C. Horn because J.C. Horn was the Panthers pick at pick eight, who played three games before he went on IR last season. According to Mel Kuyper, during the NFL draft, the best available prospect, though, and the best rated defensive prospect in the draft, Micah Parsons, was sitting there at pick number eight. And by the way, had Carolina kept the number eight pick in the draft and they took Denver's offer for pick nine, they still would have had Micah Parsons available at pick number nine. Now, maybe the Dallas Cowboys look at that and say, we have to now jump from pick 12 to pick eight with Carolina. But if Carolina was dead set on taking JC Horn, no matter what, there's nothing you can do with that situation. Detroit's going to sit there at either eight or nine, and they are going to pick Micah Parsons. And think about how that changes the trajectory of the Detroit Lions franchise, right? No matter how great that 32 pick turns out, or the, the extra first round pick next year, 
from the Los Angeles Rams, no matter what, you walk away with all pro in his first year, defensive rookie of the year, guy who people are already saying is one of the three best players in the NFL, blue chip NFL player who could be on a Hall of Fame path because he's the best player in his rookie class. And again, made all pro his rookie year. I'm not saying that Micah Parsons is going to be a Hall of Famer, but man, he looks like the best player coming out of his draft class, bar none after the first season. Jamar Chase right up there too. I think a lot of people would take Micah Parsons with the first pick if we had to do this draft all over again. So Detroit could have gotten Penny Sewell and Micah Parsons out of the Matthew Stafford trade. And 10 times out of 10, you're trading Matthew Stafford in exchange for Micah Parsons. But now let's play that game down the road here. Say they get Parsons. Say they end up with Panay Sewell. Say they maybe win one more game next year just by having Micah Parsons on the team. And maybe they get the three pick in the NFL draft instead of the two pick. Now, this draft class is already especially weak. Our buddy Blake Jude over on the podcast told us that the top prospect in this year's class might have been the fifth or sixth graded prospect in last year's class. Detroit has already had talks about trading down, but at this point, you have the leeway to trade down because you've already hit on your blue chip prospects. Panay Sewell is going to be your franchise left tackle, hopefully for the next decade. Micah Parsons, if you do right by him, is going to be a star for you for the next decade, like he will be for the Dallas Cowboys. You have the leeway to trade down and accumulate assets to build around this weird construct of a team that you've created that's designed to lose but is also designed to get a lot of players. And I like the strategy of getting hits on the board, but ultimately the Detroit Lions are going to be defined by how many star caliber players they get on this team. And ultimately, you look at the roster right now, Sewell is really, really good. He's going to be a left tackle for the next 10 years for them. He didn't have, I mean, he was battling injury, but he didn't have the same dominant type of season as Micah Parsons did. That's not to say that Sewell can't be great in the future, They also need multiple all-pro players. The thing that helps the Arizona Cardinals make the playoffs is multiple all-pro players at different positions. And if you point to the Detroit Lions roster right now, other than Taylor Decker and Frank Ragnow, who are really great offensive linemen also, not really anyone you can point to on the Lions that really signifies that they're one of those 15 game-changing players in the NFL. Clearly not a quarterback. Maybe they have one of the rare guys who's not a quarterback that looks like a game changer, like what we think Micah Parsons is going to be. So ultimately, I think their best bet is to take a shot with whoever the number two or three pick is in this draft class, whether it's Hutchinson, whether it's uh, Kevon Thibodeau, even if it's Evan Neal, even though they have so many offensive linemen at this point, their best bet is to hope that one of those guys at the top of the draft is a generational talent because this is the pick you traded Matthew Stafford for. You delayed the compensation on Stafford and ultimately didn't get Micah Parsons out of this deal because you wanted to have a top pick in this year's draft. And by the way, the Lions remarkably unlucky in one score games probably should have been better than their record suggested. But the difficult part of this is do you keep, if you had Micah Parsons and Penny Sewell in tow, maybe that's easier to trade down from number two because you know, you have generational talents Now you just got to fill the rest of the talent gaps around them with free agents and multiple shots at the board with draft picks because that number two pick can get you so many picks. And in a year where there isn't a generational talent at the top of the draft, 
might be a great idea to do so. But just accumulating tons of picks without having any generational stars is a difficult position for Detroit because eventually they might trade back up in the draft to try and hit on that generational star. And if they just had picked Micah Parsons and taken the better offer instead of doing right by Matthew Stafford, Lions might be in a better situation than they are today. So that's my thoughts there. Tell me what you think about this situation. Check us out on uh, the podcast, Take It Easy podcast, available wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Check out the Slump Buster YouTube channel as well. All of that was with that link in the description to this video. Uh, Yeah, Detroit Lions did the right thing and ultimately might cost them a chance to speed up this rebuild or do the rebuild correctly and remain in perpetual mediocrity for the next 10 years. Can you think of anything better than peace of mind? I'm sure I could come up with a couple, but the point still stands. NordVPN is here to give you peace of mind while you are online. With all the threats that you face today on the internet, it's more important than ever to be sure you have the best VPN that you can get. You can get NordVPN on all of your computers and devices. With NordVPN's unlimited bandwidth, you never have to worry about a slow connection either. Plans start as low as $4 per month. And if you sign up today with the exclusive promo code BLEAVE, B-L-E-A-V, you can get 70% off your NordVPN plan and one additional month free. NordVPN is risk-free for 30 days. You will get your money back no matter what. To make it a little easier, use the link in the description to this episode to go to nordvpn.com slash believe. So today felt like the perfect day to weave in a conversation that I had before. And of course, this is a YouTube segment as well as a podcast segment. So you might be listening to this not on the Take It Easy podcast, but on our YouTube channel right now, in which case, welcome in YouTube people. Um, I have been fascinated for a while about Trent Williams, and this leads into a prevalent conversation right now as Dan Snyder is being investigated by Congress about his misconduct and uh, overseeing a predatory environment for women and minorities within the Washington football team, or as I like to call them, the Washington racial slurs. And I will still continue to call them the Washington racial slurs until Dan Snyder sells the team, because let us not forget, they had a racial slur as their team name for 86 years. And it was only when pressured by sponsors did they actually end up changing the name when Dan Snyder was adamant for years that we will never change the name of the Washington racial slurs. So I'd like you to remember that part. Trent Williams is interesting because Trent Williams has had one of the most fascinating stories for an NFL star because the NFL kind of prides itself as a sport where there's a lot of nameless faces like the you, you don't really follow the star players unless they're quarterbacks or an exceptional wide receiver or maybe someone who sacks quarterbacks. But altogether, if Khalil Mack was sitting next to you in a bar, you might not be able to recognize that it was Khalil Mack. And there's a whole bunch of people. Do you think you would recognize Justin Jefferson if Justin Jefferson walked into a restaurant and sat down next to you? Um, Would you recognize Travis Kelsey 
if Travis Kelsey sat down next to you in a restaurant, there's a chance you might not. There's a lot of faceless names in the NFL and nameless faces. And Trent Williams plays a position that is especially faceless, which is left tackle in the NFL. Uh, The old trope about left tackles is you only get talked about when you do something wrong. And we only know your name and you only end up on the highlight reels when something goes bad. Because if you're doing your job right, you don't get recognized because the quarterback's making the plays or the running back is breaking through the, the gaps that you've created and created a big run play. All of that stuff, yada, yada, yada. Combined with the fact that Trent Williams spent the first seven years of his, or I'm sorry, the first nine years of his career, excuse me, first nine years of his career playing for the Washington football team. And the Washington racial slurs had one of the best left tackles in the NFL. And we just didn't care because he played for Washington. Trent Williams got drafted in that 2010 draft class. That is still one of the all-time great draft classes, or I'm sorry, 2011 was one of the all-time great draft classes, but 2010, still a very good draft class for our buddy Trent Williams. He ends up getting drafted in 2010 out of Oklahoma and he played with Adrian Peterson and he's friends with Adrian Peterson and all that stuff. He, uh, he was also Sam Bradford's guy in a draft that, by the way, three. this is a fun fact I like throwing out all the time. Three of the top four picks in that draft played at Oklahoma. That team didn't win a championship, but damn it if they shouldn't have won a championship if not for Colt McCoy. They had Gerald McCoy, Trent Williams, and Sam Bradford all on the same team. And two years earlier, they also had Adrian Peterson. Like This was an absolutely stacked team at Oklahoma. But anyways, Trent Williams ends up going to Washington. Washington is terrible. And then in 2012, Dan Snyder forces the team to trade up and get Robert Griffin III. Trent Williams in RG3 rookie year, the the magical RG3 rookie season that was somehow 10 years ago. And we're going to make an amazing 30 for 30 on one day. That season, Trent Williams made his first Pro Bowl. He then made the Pro Bowl the next year, the year after, and then made an all-pro team. The Pro Bowl seven consecutive years for the Washington football team. And yes, he only made one all-pro, but I think that that's just existing at the same time as Joe Thomas is going to do some of that to you. It's just he happened to play in an era that had great tackle play every single year from Joe Thomas. And so now you have Trent Williams playing Nine years in Washington, seven Pro Bowls. Washington is like mediocre all the way through. There used to be a fun stat about the Washington racial slurs that they were one and one in their last two games, two and two in their last four, three and three in their last six, four and four, six and six, eight and eight, 12 and 12, 16, 16 and one. It goes all the way to like 33, 33 and one, like just six straight seasons of just being piss poor in the middle. Like not great, not bad, made two playoff appearances, lost in the wild card in both games, just straight mediocrity from Washington every single year, as we like to call it, Kirk Cousins purgatory, which they had Kirk Cousins for half of Trent Williams time there. They end up moving off of Kirk Cousins. They bring in Alex Smith for the one season. Alex Smith gets hurt. All that happens. And then Trent Williams ends up sitting out the entire 2019 season for Washington because Washington misdiagnosed his cancer. Trent Williams had a cancerous lump 
on his head in 2013. It was misdiagnosed by the Washington football team. And in 2019, he has to have surgery to have that removed six years later, detected in 2013, wait six years to have it end up being removed. This is like totally unheard of story in any sports like Kawhi Leonard mistrusted the San Antonio Spurs doctors and um, uh, Danny Green or Manu Ginobili. Someone on the team had an issue with an injury being misdiagnosed by the Spurs doctors, but that's the closest you can get to anything like this for a player who is one of the three best at their positions in a sport to have a team that we know is totally dysfunctional misdiagnose his cancer is an unbelievable sentence that I'm amazed we don't talk about more. Most people have kind of forgotten that that's even a thing that happened for Trent Williams. And people don't remember that Trent Williams sat out the entire 2019 season, a year that Washington was so bad that they ended up by virtue of Case Keenum not scoring a half a yard against a New York Giants team at the end of a meaningless week 17 game. Because of that, they get the number two pick that ends up drafting Chase Young. And because the team is in a rebuild, not because Trent Williams has any like contract requirement to play for them because he's still under contract with them. Trent Williams, who has one year left on his deal, ends up getting a trade out of Washington but he has to do the Le'Veon Bell thing of sitting out an entire season. We spent every single week in the 2017 season following around Le'Veon Bell and what Le'Veon Bell was going to do after holding out for an entire season. It was on every sports talk show every day. I know because this was a period of time where I was watching a lot of those sports talk shows. We didn't say shit about Trent Williams, who again sat out an entire season in his prime, made seven consecutive Pro Bowls before that season, sat out the entire year after seven straight Pro because his team mis- because his team misdiagnosed his cancer. And we just don't talk about that anymore. So he sat out the entire 2019 season for Washington. And this is right before the congressional investigation, or I'm sorry, not the congressional investigation, the NFL investigation begins into the Washington football team four months later. So this is right at the very beginning of the pandemic. Remember all that two years ago? You can still see some of our old videos here on the YouTube channel from that time period. So Trent Williams ends up getting traded to San Francisco for a third rounder and a fifth rounder. Like by virtue of sitting out the entire season, it lowers his trade value and they still traded him to San Francisco for pennies on the dollar because they were just in a place where they had fired Jay Gruden. They had just hired Ron Rivera, hired a new general manager. They were just ready to grant Trent Williams his release. And it ends up being the greatest thing for Trent Williams because he immediately comes back, makes a Pro Bowl in 2020, makes first team all pro in 2021, and had the highest grade on pro football focus of any left tackle since pro football focus had started doing the grading. The greatest season for a left tackle, according to pro football focus, which by the way, helps running 
or offenses that run the ball give higher grades to offensive linemen. Let's put that out there first and foremost. But still, one of the highest, one of the best seasons ever for a left tackle after sitting out an entire season because the team that is totally inept that he made seven Pro Bowls with, and we kind of forget that he ever played there in the first place, misdiagnosed his cancer treatment. It's one of the most insane things ever for one of the best left tackles ever who should be a first ballot Hall of Famer, if not make the Hall of Fame within like three tries because Trent Williams is already at age 32, a nine-time Pro Bowler, first-team All-Pro once, second-team All-Pro once. This dude is one of the best left tackles in the NFL, and nobody talks about just how insane of a career this dude has had. And I think it has as much to do with the team he played for and how inept the Washington football team has been for the last 20 years in combination with the position he plays and in combination with just the faceless spirits of the NFL. Like we just don't know a lot of the star players who aren't quarterbacks or running backs or the occasional wide receiver or someone who sacks quarterbacks really well. But usually the famous ones are the white ones like the Watt brothers or the Bosa brothers. You don't see this type of player with this type of career have the story that he has and just nobody talks about it. I really am amazed that we don't talk about this story more because it is genuinely insane how all of this has gone down for Trent Williams, for Washington, for now San Francisco, as that's now a part of this story. It's one of the most insane NFL careers we can think of. And it plays into this story of the Washington football team right now as Robert Griffin III is writing a book that's going to come out in uh, August of this year about surviving Washington. And it it's gonna looks like it's going to be a great book and congressional investigations are going on, the ineptitude of that organization is something that I think swallowed Trent Williams to a certain extent, but he's a fascinating example of just the construct of the NFL as a whole and how they've created a system where you don't have to know the star players all that well, and the biggest of the big fans do recognize the names and can tell you some of the things about it, but because it's a left tackle, we aren't as certain about how all of this analysis is done. And as it relates to the San Francisco 49ers, it's part of the reason the 49ers have built this. As I say that the 49ers have had the best roster construction in the NFL since the Legion of Boom without figuring out the quarterback position. Obviously, the Seahawks figured it out later, but Russell Wilson was an average quarterback during the Super Bowl runs and then blossomed into this generational quarterback. The the Seahawks roster construction with seven All-Pro and Pro Bowl players, most of them on their rookie contracts at the same time, is the magic the 49ers have replicated. And part of that magic is they got a generational left tackle for a third-round pick and a fifth-round pick, and they drafted George Kittle, a possible future Hall of Fame tight end, with a fifth-round pick. They drafted Nick Bosa. They drafted Fred Warner in the third round. They've drafted a Rick Armstead and extended him. They basically just gave away DeForest Buckner for nothing. They got Javon Kinlaw, but he hasn't been much. They basically gave away another all-pro player. Kyle Juszczyk made a Pro Bowl this year. Debo Samuel's emerging into a star. It's incredible how they've built that roster, and Trent Williams is kind of at the crux of what makes Jimmy Garoppolo someone who people who maybe – 
view the quarterback position as a way of evaluating football, look at Jimmy Garoppolo, call him a winner and say the 49ers should keep him when Jimmy Garoppolo is a beneficiary of having four all pro to pro bowl caliber players on his offense, not to mention the four pro bowl players on his defense. And part of that is Trent Williams and Trent Williams is a left tackle that comes. He replaced Joe Staley and they kind of just kept the wagon rolling after the fact. So what the 49ers have accomplished up to this point is keeping that train rolling with Trent Williams sliding in for, you know, potentially future Hall of Fame left tackle Joe Staley and the 49ers have having seven, eight all pro caliber players and those seven, eight all pro caliber players, most of them being on either their rookie contract in 2019 or still on their rookie contract today have been the booster for a championship run where they haven't solved the quarterback position made a super bowl made another nfc championship it's been a pretty impeccable run for the 49ers granted that jimmy garoppolo's kind of been a middle of the road serviceable quarterback and i would argue that it is the best team assembled around a lack of quarterback play sustainably since the legion of boom i know the eagles won the super bowl in there too but i i typically since the legion of boom So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in to the Take It Easy podcast. I appreciate each and every one of you for stopping in. For those of you listening exclusively on the podcast, since we did mention Jimmy Garoppolo and at the moment of recording, he has not been traded yet, I'd like to play this wonderful parody song that we created last month for our beloved Jimmy Garoppolo to play us out into the weekend. Call it the club, call it whatever you want at the end of the weekend as Levitard Show does the club at the end of the weekend. This is our version of that, playing this Jimmy Garoppolo parody song as much as we possibly can before he gets traded by the 49ers. Did I make Trent Williams somehow about Jimmy Garoppolo? Yes, I did. And does that argue against the point I was trying to make about us paying too much attention to the face the quarterbacks with faces and the faceless other position players? Yes, it does. Ah, well. Take it easy, everybody. Garoppolo drops back to throw. You're gonna lose the game. The seasons come and seasons go. The Niners need a change. If you don't throw check downs, you're gonna take a sack. Jimmy G is warming up. Yeah, he's your quarterback. No, don't throw it. Interceptions drive us all insane. Phones are calling. Ron Rivera wants to make a trade. If a rookie QB isn't in your plans, just call San Francisco up. They got your quarterback.
They say he's smart and he wins games. That don't mean a thing. If since week one, Trey Lance had played, the 49ers would have had a ring. If your team's rebuilding, talent's what you lack. Trade two picks for Jimmy G. Now he's your quarterback.